Harold Kim is president of the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform. Before assuming the role, he served as executive vice president of the Institute, and he was also special assistant to the president in the White House Office of Legislative Affairs under President George W. Bush. Today, he will discuss the liability concerns emerging amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in. Well, thank you, Andrew. And Liz, thank you for the invite uh, for doing this. I had a a lot of fun doing the discussion last Friday. And like I said last Friday, the work that you all do, no labels working with the Problem Solvers Caucus is critically important, especially at this moment of a lot of uncertainty and unprecedented activity. And so um, having having this opportunity to to speak to all of you is a real real pleasure. And so I will um, hit some points of interest in terms of what's happening here in Washington, uh, in terms of the policy debate on liability concerns, and then we can get into a discussion uh, right after that. So let me start out by saying that the issues of liability arising from this pandemic is a major national problem that's getting a lot of attention across this country. And I'm sure that many of you who are on the Zoom call are seeing this firsthand, even in your own business. And as I said last week, in all my years from practicing law to working in government and now here at the chamber, I have never seen a groundswell of concern quite like this coming from virtually every sector of the American economy. We're hearing from Fortune 500 companies, small to medium-sized enterprises, and even mom-and-pop stores. And it's not just businesses that are voicing these concerns. We're talking about frontline healthcare workers, doctors, hospitals, schools, and universities, just to name a few. In fact, the American Council on Education, which represents over 1,700 higher learning institutions, sent a letter last week to the congressional leadership raising concerns about liability and the need for Congress to do something about it. So what are the solutions? Uh, For starters, we think that the response has to be done and pursued at every level possible. Congress needs to act through legislation, the federal agencies can take administrative action, and even the states have an important role in all of this. In fact, to date, over 20 states have enacted legislation or issued executive orders that extend liability protections against COVID-19 related litigation. And it's important to note that these initiatives in the states were done on a bipartisan basis because governors and legislatures knew that there were serious problems that required timely action, especially as businesses were reopening their doors under various phased approaches state by state. And over the course of the past few months, the chamber has been working with business leaders, practitioners, and even academics to identify four major areas of liability concerns. Uh, These are exposure claims, they're product liability lawsuits, medical liability, and if you're a publicly traded company, securities litigation. I'll talk a little on each and the specific solutions um, before I turn it over to Andrew. First, there's exposure liability, and this is probably the biggest area of concern that we've heard from the business community. These are claims that employees, customers, or even third parties could bring against a business for not taking reasonable precautions to prevent exposure to the coronavirus. Our proposed legislation would provide a safe harbor against negligence claims if a business followed federal or state and local guidelines on things like social distancing, the use of N95 masks and hand sanitizers. And in a lot of ways, we're calling for the creation of a federal standard of care that a business can follow so they won't get sued. And if you disregard the guidelines or if you act in a grossly negligent or reckless manner, then you can't get into the safe harbor. The second liability area is in the product liability space. And this holds especially true in the context of personal protective equipment or PPE and other countermeasures used to prevent spread of the virus. 
There are current protections under the federal law called the PREP Act, that's P-R-E-P. And the reach of this is somewhat limited to a defined set of products and to certain people who use them. So what we're calling for is to amend the PREP Act to expand the protected class of countermeasures like sneeze guards and disinfectants and gowns, just to name a few. And something that we think is critically important as a lot of companies are repurposing their manufacturing to do hand sanitizers. I like to use the example uh, in Kentucky, bourbon distilleries are now manufacturing hand sanitizer because of the need. And major companies like Honeywell and Ford, auto companies are, are manufacturing respirators in response to this pandemic. And there should be liability protections that attach to that. The third area of concern falls into the medical liability arena. What we're talking about here are lawsuit protections for the front lines battling this pandemic, like healthcare workers, the hospitals, nursing homes, and assisted living facilities. And we've developed and advanced these proposals based on recent executive orders issued by governors in places like New York, Michigan, and Illinois. But given the patchwork of state protections, we think that a uniform federal law is going to be absolutely critical as COVID-19 has virtually hit every state in this country. And like our proposal on exposure claims, there would be, except, there would be exceptions um, for willful misconduct, recklessness, or gross negligence. In other, in other words, you wouldn't get those liability protections. And finally, there are securities claims. And as you know, the stock market has been up and down. I think it's been actually better today because of the unemployment numbers. But it's really easy to see class action securities lawyers claiming that a publicly traded company did or didn't do something in response to the pandemic, which caused a drop in the stock price. And we've seen an escalation of class action securities litigation over the past few years and something that we think that the trial bar is likely going to capitalize on given where the markets have been directed over the last even three months. And so we're suggesting procedural protections to the 33 and 34 Securities Exchange Act, which is really within the federal province. And as I said last Friday, I'd like to tell you what these solutions are, but also what they're not. First, what we're calling for in terms of our discussions with Congress, in terms of the draft legislation, are timely, targeted, and temporary solutions. The solutions that we've recommend draw from bipartisan ideas in the past, uh, enacted by strong majorities in Congress, uh, whether it was the Safety Act or even the Y2K Act back in 1999 when there was this enormous concern that our digital computer platforms were going to crash because of the, the year 2000. And so there were liability protections that were passed in those days and with strong Democratic and Republican support. And they're also inspired by what's happening recently on a bipartisan basis in the states over the course of the last three months. And I think it's important to note that our proposals draw widespread support from the American public. We commissioned a poll about three or four weeks ago, and it showed that more than six in 10 Americans thought that Congress should extend liability protections for businesses. And when you drill down further into these numbers, into the detailed proposals that we're recommending, the numbers jump as high as 84%, and this draws from a strong pool of registered Democratic voters, Republican voters, and independents. So let me wrap up by telling you what these proposals are not. We're not proposing blanket immunity or guaranteed immunity. As I mentioned before, the safe harbor protections that we're recommending would only cover those businesses that follow CDC and or state and local guidance. So if you don't follow it, you're not going to be entitled to those safe harbor protections, and there's nothing guaranteed about that. And second, we're not proposing solutions that are in search of a problem. This problem is real because there is actually no doubt in my mind that there's a hanging cloud of liability over businesses that are deciding whether to reopen their doors. And if we have to wait for a flood of litigation or class action lawsuits to justify congressional action, 
I think it's just going to be too late. So with that, let me stop here, and I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm going to, I'm going to ask the first question, which is, uh, how, how are the states going to interface, and will there be any, uh, any real change in the dynamic of uh, uh, um, litigation between what the states have traditionally, uh, has, has traditionally happened in the states and what the federal government is going to want to take on as uh, their, their own domain? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the way that we have structured the comprehensive solutions is that Congress should enact legislation which would create a federal standard when it comes to liability protections. And it would effectively act as a floor because those states that have enacted legislation that goes beyond the protections offered by Congress uh, would, would have that prevailing rule of law in any negligence cases, tort cases, public nuisance cases that could be brought in the wake of COVID-19. Um, but the federal law would preempt existing state law when it comes to common law tort claims and negligence claims. And to the extent that those states have not enacted liability protections like California or uh, other pockets of the country. So we think that the federal law really provides an important gap-filling function to create national uniformity, but states are certainly within their own rights to establish higher liability protections based upon any particular state. Great. We've got uh, uh, Clarin Nardi Riddle, then Robert Zanuck, and then um, uh, Stamen Ogilvy. So uh, Clarin, you're up. Thanks, uh, Andrew, and nice to see you, Harold. Hi, Clarin. What what happened there? Um, uh, have you heard that um, the the e the higher education community is also requesting uh, this uh, liability backstop? It's becoming a big issue in both public and private higher ed. Yeah, it uh, it bubbled up uh, about two weeks ago when the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on these liability issues and the General Counsel from Texas Christian testified about you know, the, the hanging cloud of liability because when you look at universities, it's not just an educational institution. They have vendors, they have concessionaires, they have sporting events. So he really, he, he did a nice job underscoring these concerns. And then just this week, the Senate Help Committee held a hearing. I think Mitch Daniels from Purdue had testified. Um, the Dean of Brown University also testified, and she was specifically asked a question from Senator Warren about the liability issues. And uh, the Brown University Dean said, these are real issues as we're looking to reopen. You know, our top priority is to protect our students, but the flood of class action lawsuits will divert resources from educational pursuits into defending litigation. And there's also an undercurrent of the worry in terms of how insurance policies um, are going to become a lot more expensive when it comes to commercial liability. And so, you know, this all plays as part of a bigger ecosystem when it comes to, you know, how businesses operate and just the uncertainty and the risk, whether you're a business, whether you're a university or any type of business that has a, an enormous amount of density as part of that business model. Thank you. Robert Zedek. Uh, thank you, and thank you, Harold, for your comments this morning. <clears throat> I have two comments, uh, both two questions, if you will, both each different from the other. The first question is uh, the request, of course, for immunity against class actions makes a lot of sense, but isn't that 
an issue for each state to decide in respect to federalism. There is no reason for a national standard. Each state can decide as to the colleges and other institutions in its jurisdiction, whether it's a good idea or not. So while I support the principle of class action immunity, I wonder what the argument is for one federal standard in respect to federalism. The second comment, uh, quite different, but I'd like the answer to both questions. The second question I have is, the, all the arguments in favor of eliminating temporarily class actions are also arguments in favor of eliminating them permanently. It's only a question of degree. So if class actions represent a threat to whoever, they represent a threat at all times to whoever. So if you persuade people class actions are bad, why limit it to temporary? Well, Robert, thank you for your question. Um, on your first point regarding Congress's authority to basically uh, displace state tort law, that's that's that, that's really the the essence of this. I will say that under our Constitution, Congress does have enumerated powers under Article One, and one is the Commerce Clause, where Congress has the authority to act if there are burdens on interstate commerce. Uh, this is this has been. Um, part of the Constitution that Congress has used as authority to enact the Class Action Fairness Act or the Gun Liability Bill or the PREP Act, which effectively does displace state tort law because there is a finding that especially in the COVID-19 arena, uh, interstate commerce and, and the explosion of litigation could be severely affected in terms of how businesses operate. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not just businesses that operate you know, in a multitude of states. I mean, you could be a flower shop and you're still using the means of interstate commerce when it com comes to your supply chain. And if there's an untold amount of litigation as a result of that, then Congress has that authority to, to, to act. And I think the Supreme Court would, under its current um, Commerce Clause ju jurisprudence, uh, there would probably be more than a majority of votes that would endorse that particular view in terms of Article I powers. Um, the other thing I would add is that there has been a constitutional analysis as part of this debate from um, uh, 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 Mike Carvin from Jones Day. And this memo does go into a very detailed analysis of past precedents, past, past case law, but when it comes to economic activity, the Congress, congressional authority under the Commerce Clause is pretty strong and, and valid, um, just given the precedents in the past with what Congress has done you know, in, in the area of legal reform. Um, on your point about eliminating class actions, I guess my first response to that is our proposals wouldn't touch class class actions because class actions are really a, a product of its a procedural mechanism that allows a number of plaintiffs to band together. Uh, there are certification requirements. There's a, there's a specific rule under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Class actions can still move forward. They just have to meet class certification standards. And as far as I know, none of the... Uh, none of the proposals that's currently being drafted would affect Rule 23 under those circumstances. It's really the underlying cause of action that we're trying to look at. You know, what is the basis for the lawsuit? It's not the mechanism to aggregate all the claimants. So um, hopefully that assuages some of the concerns in terms of the me mechanism itself. I mean, we could have a separate discussion about class action abuses and some of the 
the bad outcomes where the lawyers usually walk away with a significant amount of fees and most of the class action claimants either get a coupon settlement or $5 in these consumer class action cases. But uh, when it comes to the proposals that are on the table right now, they are targeted to the underlying negligence cause of action or the source of the liability as opposed to the mechanism by which the litigation could be pursued. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Next up, uh, Stamen Ogilvy. Stamen? Yep, thanks. Uh, Harold, thank you very much for your organized uh, explanation of how one thinks about this at the uh, aggregate level. what I did not hear is about the casualty insurance industry itself. I know they've got a strong lobby and they will take care of themselves, but uh, what is the feeling of uh, total exposure to that industry that COVID brings about, even without the uh, hurricane Cristobal starting the hurricane season and the things they usually work about, worry about? I think they are protected from insurrection. Uh, internal things so they may be safe on a lot of the vandalism that has occurred in the last two weeks but yeah where does all that stand well i will say that the property and casualty industry is part of a very broad coalition that the chamber is leading on the covid liability safeguards that we are advocating before congress and before the states so they are uh, they're very concerned about where the liability is going to go because, um, you know, if you look at major crises, just look at the uh, the Great Recession a little over 10 years ago, the flood of litigation that followed uh, was pretty significant in, in addition to the enforcement activity, and that litigation is still still out there. And so there's, there's concern that at, at its inception, when the economy was closing down, that there would be a potential flood of claims. And so they are very concerned about where that is headed. Um, But there are also other issues that I know that the property and casualty industry is dealing with specifically when it comes to things like business interruption claims. And that's pitted a a spirited discussion or a debate between restaurants and other businesses that want to get covered for their claims, even though those CGL policies may have specific pandemic exclusions. Um, That's that's on a separate sidetrack. We are very much just focused on the immediate liability concerns, but that's a, a coda to some of the things that the, the PNC industry is looking at. Thank you. Welcome. Bill Kaufman. Thank you. Uh, I'm just curious. It seems to me one of the difficult problems will be getting legislation through the House. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, and how do you plan to proceed? Well, so the current procedural posture, I mean, this, uh, this got a lot of attention when the Senate leader Mitch McConnell drew the proverbial, I mean, he actually said the red line um, that any phase four bill, any further economic stimulus for state and local governments uh, would have to be accompanied by liability protection. So he's basically laid down the gauntlet. And so if there is going to be a negotiated compromise package for additional funding for the states, uh, dealing with unemployment insurance, these other issues, that liability protections have to be part of that discussion. And so, um, you know, that, that's why this, this has become so elevated because it's, it's really part of a, a broader discussion. But the, the guidelines, at least from the Senate leadership on the Republican side, has made it clear that, um, you know, the, the, any future appropriations has to have that piece of it. 
and I'll say where we are right now um, in this work period because uh, the Senate just came back on Monday. They've got five weeks before the July 4th recess where they leave town for a week and a half and then come back for a shortened period prior to the traditional August recess is um, there's, there's a lot of uh, scene setting going on, if you will, or posturing between the political parties. And um, I think where we are right now is in a little bit of a stare down mode because we haven't seen legislation actually on the liability front circulated. And so I think Pelosi and Schumer are waiting for McConnell and Cornyn, you know, to act first and vice versa. And so as, as the days and weeks um, go by, I do expect some activity uh, moving forward in terms of the, you know, the, the starting point of a legislative package. And the other thing I would add is um, about a week and a half ago, the House uh, quickly passed a $3 trillion uh, economic stimulus package. And um, it obviously didn't have anything in there about liability protections, but it, it was pretty much dead, dead on arrival of the Senate. So uh, again, there's, there's this posturing that's going on. I think everybody realizes that there has to be a serious effort to do something on phase four. And as you know, time goes by, there's going to be a lot more activity on that front. Thank you. So let, let, let me throw something in here. Do we expect anything from the posturer in chief? <laughs> well, I, I will tell you that the administration has been aligned with Leader McConnell's calls for liability protections. Uh, the chamber had our board meeting just uh, yesterday, and we had Larry Kudlow, who heads up NEC, talking about the importance of uh, securing liability protections. Uh, it's, uh, the president himself has also said it, uh, in addition to Steve Mnuchin, um, the Treasury Secretary, who's going to play a very key role as part of phase four because of the, the, the funding aspects of this. So there's, there is alignment with the White House, the administration, and, um, and with the con at least the Republican leadership in Congress. Mike Precom. In, in view of the, the fact that there appears to be some uh, resistance to this legislation, there always is, can you see where it's coming from and how strong it is? Well, it's coming from the trial lawyers, first and foremost. Um, you know, they're, they're, um, they've, they've been out there talking about uh, a number of issues with the proposed legislation. And, you know, we had a, a nice spirited discussion last week um, with a representative from the American Association for Justice. And uh, we went back and forth on um, issues like, you know, is this really needed? Uh, there's really not a, a plethora of litigation at this point. And then, uh, so they're probably the leading uh, opponents of this legislation at this point. Um, but I think that they did send a letter with some other organizations, consumer consumer groups. Um, but, you know, my point on this is that they haven't seen the legislation. It's not blanket immunity or guaranteed immunity, as they put it, because we think that our proposal is a safe harbor where if you follow CDC guidelines and you do the right thing, it makes sense that you shouldn't be sued. And there are very specific exclusions for liability protection if you acted recklessly or willfully or grossly negligent, which is a higher level, you know, of conscious disregard for the safety of others. And there shouldn't, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have those types of protections as a business owner. I mean, you should be held accountable if, uh, if your conduct amounts to that, that level of, um, you know, wrongfulness. You know, you, you answered my second question, which uh, obviously is implied that there has to be very good and clear guidelines and that has to be from the federal level. And, that's going to be a chore to to carve out. 
it, I guess with something as infectious as COVID, it has to be done as long as COVID's around. Yeah, and I think uh, a, a, the debate in Congress will definitely gravitate towards uniform standards when it comes to what the government's role is. I mean, you know, we talked about this last Friday, Senator Coons talked about this last Friday, when it comes to workplace standards, uh, shouldn't OSHA uh, initiate a regulatory process that employers could follow? And, you know, we've thought about this a lot as well, because we have, we have a lot of members who are looking at competing guidance documents, either at the state and local level versus the federal level. So for example, like temperature checks, you know, is it 103 degrees? Is it 101 degrees? What standard do I follow? And so for any business owner, I think having uniformity is important because you want to know what the rules of the road are. But I think there are practical complications with, with pursuing a monolithic regulatory approach. One is OSHA is really in the workplace environment. Uh, when you look at OSHA regs, they're usually very industry specific. So we are concerned that a one size fits all approach could be cumbersome, unworkable, and not flexible enough to adjust to, to you know, new developments in science as we learn more about the coronavirus. Like, you know, when I go to the supermarket, you know, a month ago, nobody was wearing masks, but now they're requiring people to wear masks. And I think that the viewpoints on N95 masks have changed dramatically to where we are now. And so there has to be a sufficient level of agility in order to adjust uh, as we learn more, as the science develops. And it's got, it's got to be flexible enough for, for companies and businesses to follow of all stripes. Thank you. You're welcome. Jim Bernstein. Um, thank you very much. Harold, the question I have um, relates to uh, the fact that sometimes members don't really understand commercial practicability when it comes to small business. Um, and clearly, we're not looking to be reckless or willful or uh, consciously disregarding standards, but it gets awfully difficult and awfully expensive when uh, the guidelines are so muddled. So can you give some guidance on how a small business, how, how a small business can comply and, and shield themselves from liability? I think the best level of advice is to accumulate information and get an appreciation and an understanding from numerous data sources. You'd want to start with state and local guidance. You know, what is the state health department saying? Uh, especially as governors are authorizing, you know, a phased-in reopening. Uh, certain states may be more precise than others, and that's that's where the complexities come. Then I would also look at the CDC guidance that's coming out. Uh, CDC, I think, about a week and a half ago, came out with much more detailed guidance, and I would I would expect that it's going to continue to evolve um, as time passes by. The other thing that I would recommend for small businesses is. Um, Go to your state and local chambers, come to the U.S. Chamber, come to our website because we're trying to provide as many information sources as possible because the state and local chambers, um, we're trying to coordinate an effort as part of a phased reopening and how can we help businesses understand what their obligations are to direct them to the right sources so that um, you know they have that information and that's something that the U.S. Chamber is very focused on um, as the economy gets up and running. Thank you. That was a great answer. I appreciate it. Okay. Robert Zedek, you have another uh, another question? 
Uh, thank yeah. you. Thank you again. Thank you for accepting my second question. When I hear your standards, uh, Harold, they appear to, I'm not a litigator, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a litigator. Um, they appear quite reasonable. And what strikes me as being interesting, if I can use that phrase, um, and somewhat curious, is if, the, if there are, since there are groups that oppose your measure, they have to be arguing that they believe that if a business follows your standards, they still should be liable in negligence. That's kind of a, since your standards seem the absence of negligence, how could anybody uh, with integrity argue that compliance with those standards still creates liability? And if they can't make the argument, how can they oppose your initiative? I ask that same question myself, um, but before I answer your question in substance, you know, it's, I just want to be clear, it's it's not our, our measure. I mean, we've made recommendations. Ultimately, it's the members of Congress as they draft the bill, and as we see it, we'll, we'll see whether we can support it or not based upon the principles that we, um, that we laid out. But we think that based on our discussions with the Senate leadership, it's headed in the right direction into the major areas that I've identified. Uh, when it comes to the merits of the case. I agree. I mean, Robert, we, we hear from the other side that proving a negligence case, especially uh, when it comes to exposure to the coronavirus, is going to be incredibly difficult because you have to prove causation. I mean, how do you know? Of course. That That's my point. Right. I mean, if you did a day of errands and you went to the grocery store, then to the dry cleaners, you know, how do you, how do you prove that case and how do you win under those circumstances? And I think the reality of litigation, at least the litigation that we're concerned about, is what I would describe as attorney driven. And so regardless of the merits of the case, because some of these cases, they're, they're not pursued so that it finds its way into a courtroom and a jury trial like a John Grisham novel. It's about accumulate, it's about finding a theory of liability. And regardless of how much factual inquiry you've done as a lawyer, which as, as, as a lawyer you're supposed to do, um, it's the claims are still being brought. Whether it has the causation requirements or the factual predicate to support it, because a lot of this litigation strategy is about amassing claims, it's about advertising to get volume and to get clients, whether it's a class action or a mass tort, and it's about leveraging a settlement at the end of the day. And that's why in the class action context, you, know, you don't see a lot of those cases going to trial. Uh, once you get past class certification, a vast majority of those cases settle. And so for a company, you're not gonna wanna litigate it because lawyers are expensive, discovery is expensive, and you wanna settle. And that's been the model that we've been concerned about uh, where the judges don't have as much of the oversight as you would in a trial setting. John Upton? Thank you. I'm not sure. And by the way, this is a perfect group to field these questions and, and your message. Thank you. Uh, my question, I don't know if it's about messaging or whether it's actually about laws and conflicts of laws, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Uh, the discussion usually uh, inspires most pragmatic leaders, what you've laid out. But there's always a component that I've heard, and I'm communicating from the field, uh, where you say, and Ford makes respirators. Honeywell makes respirators is kind of non-native manufacturing is a part of the crisis itself. And, and I'm, I'm seeing that brought up, even though it's around the edges. And what I'm referring to is it's being weaponized as not just a conflict of laws, 
but a disclaimer of warranty. And I'm talking about implied and explicit warranties that what people are interpreting from adding the words and Ford makes respirators is that it means a respirator doesn't have to be fit for a particular purpose or a sneeze guard doesn't need to be fit for a particular purpose. And even though that's around the edges, that's the piece that's being put, I think, in front of people where even the most pragmatic CEO, for example, would go, well, I can't get, I can't get right with that either. Uh, and so I, this may be more about message than warranty law, but I was curious if you're seeing that tension as well. You know, I haven't heard um, that particular messaging point in terms of the repurposing um, discussion. I mean, it's, it's definitely an issue that is animating the reason that there should be product liability protections because you want to encourage uh, more PPE out there as, you know, we have a shortage of masks and a shortage of ventilators. And if there is a second wave, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that our front lines have the equipment that's necessary in order to, to contain the spread of the coronavirus? So uh, that's definitely not what I've heard. I'm glad you brought it to my attention and I'll definitely keep it. Yeah, on. And, if, and if I could, just to show you what, what, and it's not scientific, what I hear you know, across the Zoom or the virtual dinner table is, well, we expect anything manufactured for public health to be fit for a particular pur purpose, period. So, yeah, for what it's worth, I'd be curious to see how that's dealt with. Well, thank you. Again, the, um, when it comes to the details of the PREP Act, I mean, there is a process where it has to, the, the countermeasures or the protective equipment, it has to be certified by the FDA or NIOSH. So there is a there is a sequence of administrative events that uh, are designed to ensure the efficacy of the product, just like a pharmaceutical product that's approved by the FDA. And so there are a series of steps under the legislative process aimed at doing that. Um, in terms of our med messaging, I mean, it's this is not this is very different from you know previous battles we've had with the plaintiffs bar on class action reform. Uh, this is this is a national emergency. We don't have a playbook for this. And the, the real concerns about liability, it's not, you know, some grassroots campaign, you know, that a PR firm is doing. I mean, this is like, it's real. And so we look at our role to try and advance solutions that, again, are timely. They have to be timely, which means they have to be done quickly. They have to be targeted. So we're not going to go and upend class actions as we know it, or we're not going to go and reach into asbestos litigation. And it's got to be targeted to the problem at hand. And they have to be temporary. So this is, you know, once the declaration of an emergency comes down, these protections, you know, if we have a vaccine and things get to normal that we all hope is going to happen, you know, these protections would no longer cease to exist. And so, you know, that's that's how we are looking at it, because at the end of the day, this does need bipartisan support and it's reasonable. It's not overreach. Uh, we've made that case very clearly with the Senate leadership, because serious moments like this require serious solutions. And so that's, that's how we look at it, just given the current state of affairs. Bill Conkler. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, and thank you, uh, Harold, for a very informative uh, session. Um, I'm involved with a bunch of different types of manufacturing operations, and they vary in degree in how easy it is to social distance. Um, but um, even if even if legislation is passed, don't you think it's incumbent upon us probably to get employees to sign waivers? And then also, if people see activity that they think is not safe, 
shouldn't we have like you know the whistleblower kind of uh um have people call the hotline or the hotline to to say hey something's not going on so that we're we're increasing you know our lines of defense um you know, against negligence. In other words, putting it on the employee, if you see something wrong, let us know about it. You know, right. don't wait, don't wait until you want to get into a courtroom with the issue. Right. Thank you. Thank you for the question. A couple of thoughts on that. One is, um, I think the, the most dominant concern right now, if you talk, if, when we talk to our members and we talk to other business leaders is the safety of employees. You know, how do we, how do we reopen safely? And it's, it's because they care about their workforce. They care about, you know, how to do the right thing. I mean, the chamber, um, you know, we're going through the same thing right now. Our building has been closed since March. We're probably not going to open it up until after Labor Day. And we're trying to take a very thoughtful approach because the safety of all of the chamber employees, and I'm, I'm heartened by it because I'm a chamber employee, is of paramount concern. Um, when it comes to things like whistleblowers and enforcement activity and reporting. I mean, obviously the legislation wouldn't create any hurdles or burdens on that front. But what I would say is that having a safe Harbor naturally creates an incentive to do the right thing, which is if you want to not be sued, here you go, follow the CDC guidance. I mean, that's the type of behavior incentivizing that, uh, that you'd want to encourage. And I think, and, and that's actually a, a point that I made with Senator Coons last Friday is um, you want to encourage compliance. You want to encourage, you know, companies wanting to do the right thing. And so if you offer a liability protection, that should move them more into that direction. Although, you know, it's probably a, a, a sliver of companies that may not care, but uh, a vast majority of our members who and everybody who we talk to, they, they are focused on workplace safety, customer safety, vendors and independent contractors. Thank you. Harold, thank you very much for your insights, for your, uh, uh, your ideas, and uh, uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. So uh, with that again, Harold, thank you very much. Let me turn it over to uh, Bill Galston, who will uh, uh, close us out. Bill? Uh, thanks, Andy, and a special thanks to uh, you, Harold. I think we have double-dipped on your willingness to share your wisdom with us. And uh, we very much appreciate your generosity. Uh, we promise not to make the third time the charm. Uh, <laughs> so you're, not, you're now in a no-label safe harbor. Uh, I think what you've said, uh, both on this occasion and previously, points to the fact that this issue is a classic no-labels moment. As you emphasized, this is not going to happen in a sensible way. It probably won't happen at all without bipartisan support. And because this is the kind of issue where there is heat as well as light, uh, it won't happen unless there's a place where these issues can be discussed by people who are going to have to vote on them in a way that is respectful and productive across partisan lines. So. For everybody, on, for everybody on this call, uh, I suspect very strongly that uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House of Representatives is going to turn out to be a leading voice 
on this issue, but I can already tell you, having talked with people on both sides, it's going to take some guts to step out and to defy the loudest voices in both camps. This is not a compromise here is essential, but it's not going to be easy. Uh, and so uh, the people in the Problem Solvers Caucus are going to need all the help that you can give them and all the protection after the fact you know, against the kind of criticism they're going to take and probably some opposition that they're going to get uh, as a result of trying to do the right thing to reopen the economy in a way that's safe for workers. So once more, uh, we're at the center of a storm. Uh, and what we do in the next few weeks on this and other issues is going to be critical. And thank you for thank you for every, to everybody on the call uh, for what you've done to sustain this effort. Uh, but we need to we need to raise it to a higher level because the times demand it. Harold Kim says he is hearing concerns about COVID nineteen liability from so many different sectors with specific worries about medical claims, exposure claims, product liability, and securities litigation. He thinks it is essential to our economy for Washington to set clear national standards about the responsibilities of businesses to protect workers and customers in the conditions under which people have a right to sue. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.